series, uh, Ever Wonder Why. As we've been walking through the season of Lent, we've been looking at some things from the life of Jesus, some things that he did, and we wonder why in the world did he do that and how did he do that. Uh, we have looked at some things that Jesus taught and things that he wanted his followers to learn. And I wonder, you know, why Jesus wants us to know this and do this. And today, it's, it's, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that's kind of, um, it's kind of difficult because we have two people who approach Jesus and they do completely different things. They have completely different motives, completely different things going on in their hearts. And, and Jesus does this incredible job of just separating that and helping us understand and discern why he prefers one over the other. And it still leaves us with some questions. It's, a, it's an interesting passage, and it's one that helps us understand a little bit about what it means to really adore God. Or if that's a, a hard word that we don't use in our conversations very often, think of it this way. How do we really love God? How do we really express our love for God? What's an appropriate way? Is it, is it okay if when we're singing we raise our hands? Is that an appropriate way to say, God, I love you? Is it okay if when the offering plate goes by, I put in some money, maybe more than what's expected, maybe not just a 10%, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something that's really sacrificial. Is that acceptable? Is it an expression of love for God if I help somebody who's fallen on hard times? And so we, we're going to see this whole kind of confused issue come to a head with Jesus, with the people around Jesus, and at least one of them that really, really loved him. And so um, I, I'm going to suggest to you a spiritual equation in God's economy that you might want to keep in mind as I talk this through. So here's the equation, the mathematic equation. Love equals sacrifice. That's it. Love equals sacrifice. So here's the beginning of the story, and I'm going to do like I've been doing here the last few weeks, and we're going to read part of the scripture for today, and then we're going to look at that, and then we're going to go in, we're going to read on, and then we're going to look at that, and then we'll read a little bit farther. So if you have a Bible with you, or if you want to grab one in, out of the, the little racks in front of you, if there's one sitting here, you're welcome to, to follow along. We're in the Gospel of John, chapter 12. If you don't, don't worry, it'll be up there on the screen, and um, you're welcome to follow along up there, too. So here's the story, and let me just give you a little bit of setup as we start reading this passage of Scripture, because we're going through the season of Lent, and I don't know if you are aware of this or caught this, but um, next Sunday is Palm Sunday. So it's the last Sunday of the Lenten season, and then two weeks from today is Easter, and we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. So we're, we're getting really close, and that's kind of where we catch up with the story. They were six days, it says, six days before the Passover celebration began. So we're kind of walking, sort of synchronized with the chronology of the story of Jesus Christ. So this is what we read in John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he'd raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. 
Then Mary, I'm going to stop there. I didn't mean to go that far. All right, let me just, let's go back through this. So here we know that what's going on is the Passover's coming. Some of you remember the Gospels tell us that Jesus went down from Nazareth, his home area up in Galilee, back in the hills with the hillbillies. Traveled down south to Jerusalem because it was the time of year where you celebrate the Passover and he told people, I'm going there to celebrate the Passover and he knew he was also going there to die. And he has been close. Bethany's not far from there. And when he was there, he interacted with his friends Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And you remember the story. They sent him word and they said, you know, Lazarus is sick. You should come because we've seen you heal people who were sick. And this is your friend. It's somebody you care about. So you should come. And Jesus doesn't go. And he delays. And he's late. And Lazarus dies. And then he shows up. And everybody is grieved. And even Christ himself is grieved. He wept outside the grave where Lazarus was buried. And he says, okay, open up the grave. Now, I've been at hundreds, I don't know, maybe even thousands of funerals and graveside services. And I've been there when they lowered the casket into the grave. I've even stuck around at times when they covered the grave. I pastored a church for a while that we owned a a piece of property that included a cemetery, and we dug the graves. The guys in the church dug the graves. And some of you are going, wow, Pastor Hink is old. Nobody does that anymore. But that church actually still owns the cemetery. And we would also then fill the grave in. And so I was fortunate because I was pastor. And so most of the time after we'd done a graveside service, I got in my car and I skedaddled back to the church building and we had a nice you know, funeral lunch while some of the guys in the church were actually filling the dirt in over the grave. I have never been there when they were doing the reverse. And I don't want to. I don't ever want to be there when someone goes, let's dig this body up. That's just, I don't know, I'm weird that way, but I don't want to be there when somebody does that. It's just not, I I can imagine, it's not pleasant. And somebody's been dead for a while. And actually, the people around Lazarus, they understand this. And when Jesus goes, hey, let's open the grave, they look at him like he has completely lost it. What are you thinking? And I, I like this because it's so poetic. In the King James Version, they go, but Christ, surely by now he stinketh. He reeketh. He be putrid. I mean, he is no longer Lazarus. He is just flesh and bones that are being eaten by worms. And Jesus goes, now let's open this up. And I'm sure people are going, oh man. And of course, we know the rest of the story. He calls Lazarus. Lazarus comes out. And I mean, it gets even more bizarre than that. If you've you've not read that passage, go back this week and read it because it's that time of year for us. I love the story of Lazarus because it's so graphic. And Lazarus comes out. I mean, he comes walking out. So you can imagine that Sister Mabel's passing out over here when Lazarus comes out. Oh, my goodness, it's a ghost, you know, and she's gone. She, I mean, she faints because he comes. And then it says this. It says Lazarus came out and he had his grave clothes. That's the translation, and I'm using quotes, right? Grave clothes. 
he has on what they buried him in. And (laughs) I love this. Jesus says, take that stuff off. Take off the grave clothes. Okay. I mean, you can just see this is an event that nobody in the audience is ever, ever, ever going to forget. And they cannot wait to go back home. They can't wait to go to work on Monday and go, you are never going to believe what happened to me this weekend. And they go, you're right, I don't believe. I mean, that's just what happened. And in fact, it is so profound. One of the Gospels records that as Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem and the Pharisees are really mad at him, they say, you know, as they're playing this, they say, you know what, let's plan and let's plot to have Jesus killed. And in fact, in one of the Gospels, it says they plan to, to kill Lazarus as well. Not just Jesus. Because this Lazarus guy is really inconvenient. They, he was dead, and everybody knew he was dead. And he got resurrected before Jesus got resurrected. And it's really inconvenient for us to have this guy walking around and people go to the Pharisees. So what's up with this guy? Because we don't have answers for that. Jesus comes back, and he's now at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And they're just sitting there. And it's, it's like Christmas, man. Lazarus is back with us. And not only is he back with us, we just went through this whole mind-blowing experience of this dead, rotted corpse coming out alive. And we don't know what to do with this. And so that's the context of the story. And so Lazarus is alive. Jesus is there with them. They're enjoying a great meal. And you can, I, I, I can't help but do this. Can you just imagine that Lazarus was like, oh, this tastes so good. Three days. I didn't eat for three. I was dead for three days. I was never going to have this kind of meal ever again. This is so, this is amazing. I imagine that Lazarus got to be incredibly annoying and obnoxious when he'd walk around and he'd go, Look at that. I was dead. I never thought I would see that again. Oh, it's you. I thought maybe after I died, you know, that I would never see you again and be able to interact with you. Now I get to have a meal and I get to eat this stuff. I can imagine that after a while you're just like, Lazarus, give it a break. We know you were dead, dude. That's the context of the story. And so in that context, I'm going to scoot forward here and I'll come back. Here we go. In that context, we find that there's stuff going on. There are people who are drawn because Jesus does wild and crazy stuff. He turns water to wine. He makes blind people see. He casts demons out of possessed people. And he makes Lazarus alive again. So we're going to stick around because this is the best show from Galilee. This is it. And there are people who are following him that are just, they're enamored with Jesus because we got to follow because something crazy is going to happen sooner or later with this guy. And they're just enamored with him and they're following him. But here's the thing. They, they really like him because he tends to do these things that get our attention and they're really entertaining and it's amazing. But then there's a few people, they don't, they're not just following him because they think, oh man, he's going to do something weird. Let's watch. But there are people who follow him because they have fallen in love with him. And so, let me go back to this passage because here's what we read. So they're sitting there, they're enjoying the meal. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, they're all there. And Mary comes in. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, 
wiping his feet with her hair, the house was filled with fragrance. I'm going to stop there. We'll come back to the scripture again. So here's people that are there like, we've got to stick around. Jesus is going to do something. It's going to be amazing. We've heard these stories from up there in Galilee. There's people who say they were healed. They drank the wine that he turned from water. And then there's the people who were deeply impacted by interacting with Jesus. And I don't think it was just Mary. But Mary is the one who's got it fresh in her memory. My dear brother was dead and rotted in a grave. And he's sitting right here next to me. And she has this perfume. And it gives us a description of the perfume. And some, yeah, sometime if you want, you can go look into this. But they figure that this amount of perfume that she had was incredibly expensive. Probably worth about a year's wages. So, I mean, in, in our context here in the United States that, I don't know, average income is somewhere around, what, $40,000? So can you imagine if I've got a bottle of perfume up here that's worth $40,000? I mean, even if I started waving it around, some of you would get nervous. This is expensive stuff. And, and some commentators suggest that the only reason Mary has this is because she has inherited it. Somebody made it back years ago and it was given to her and I can sell off a little ounce, a tiny little vial and that will make me enough money to live on for a while. This is like a CD or a savings account. It's, it's like a trust fund that was probably handed to her. And she goes and gets this thing, and in a moment of being ridiculous, she takes this bottle. One passage says she breaks it, but she opens it, and she pours it all over Jesus' feet, and then she takes her hair and she wipes it. And this stuff is so strong, and it's so powerful. Everybody in the house is just like, whoa! This week I was standing in line behind a lady at a convenience store. I ran in to grab something to drink as I was driving up to see my mom in the nursing home. And I got there and I wasn't paying a whole lot of attention. And she paid and she went on out and I walked up to pay. And the gal behind the counter goes, did you smell that lady's perfume? And I go, no, I didn't. She was like, wow, that was overwhelming. Man, she must have bathed in the bottle or something like that. And I, I was kind of thankful I didn't because I have asthma. And one of the things that tends to set me off is fragrances like that. But you can imagine, here's Mary, and she does this, and everybody in the house goes, wow, powerful stuff. And she just broke the whole thing open and poured it out and in this fit of affection. She anoints Jesus with this. So here's the thing. There are a lot of people who are enamored with Jesus. There are a lot of people who go, man, Jesus is really, really cool. But then there are those of us that have encountered him in intimate ways. And it's not just about being enamored or distracted by or a fan of Jesus. It's not just a fan. But these people are deeply in love and committed to following Jesus Christ. That's Mary. And hopefully, we find ourselves moving into that place where if we held like $40,000 investment in our hands, we'd go, here, Jesus, I love you. 
So I got this term, not a fan, from a book that I read several, actually over a year ago. As I was reading this passage of Scripture, I was reminded by some things in the book. So if you want to go look at it, the book is called Not a Fan. I'm going to read you a couple of quotes from it. It's by a guy by the name of Kyle Eidelman. And Kyle Eidelman says this, The biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians but aren't actually interested in following Christ. They're fans of Jesus, but they're not really interested in following Christ. They want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close that it requires anything of them. I'm a fan. I just want to kind of hang out close enough where maybe some blessing spills over on me. I get caught in the splash zone of blessing from Jesus, but I'm not going to get so close that I've actually got to give anything up. I'm not going to get so close that it's actually going to require anything of me. And we settle for this distant spirituality of proximity where we just kind of hang out nearby, but we're not really that committed. Eidelman goes on at another place to say, many have made a decision to believe in Jesus without making a commitment to follow Jesus. We like the idea. We like the entertainment stuff. We like it when Jesus does really cool stuff. We go, woo, that's great. I like Jesus. But when Jesus starts doing weird things and asking us to do sacrificial things, we go, well, wait a minute. I'm not interested in that kind of Christianity. And Eidelman says that is the biggest detriment to the church in the United States today. You see, we want to be fans. We don't really want to be followers. Mary... She just ran right past that. And so in the story, we pick it up. So here's Mary. She, she does this 12 ounces of nard, and she's wiping his feet with her hair. Everything just seems weird and inappropriate and awkward, and there's probably people sitting around there going, what in the world is she doing? This is just strange. And people pick up on this, and they smell the nard, and they go, what, what is this? That's so inappropriate. And I just want, you know, I sit and I look at this and I go, man, the, the whole thing about Jesus is inappropriate. Opening tombs and telling people to come out and take the grave clothes off and everybody's standing around and all this. I mean, the whole thing is inappropriate. And Mary is just part of this incredibly wild story of the power of Jesus Christ to affect change in others. So here's the thing. Mary expresses what I call this ridiculous affection. She is so taken with him that she takes what is probably the most valued possession, the most valued investment of her family, and in a few seconds, it's just poured out and the entire house knows about it and everybody is smelling this and taking it in. And she expresses this ridiculous affection that actually is quite reckless. She expresses this love that is just kind of crazy and throws off any sense of moderation. And she just goes, Jesus, here! And here's all this perfume. I would suggest to you that we get really good at making sure that our responses to Jesus are acceptable. We, we get really good at making sure that the way we respond to Jesus, that other people around will nod and go, 
way to go. That was so appropriate. When actually what Jesus wants us to do in our society would be completely inappropriate. In fact, in any society would be inappropriate because why would we do something so reckless as to take this great investment and just in a moment pour it out to Christ? You see, I I really think that what Jesus asks of us is not something that is sensible. I think what Jesus really wants from us is our best. And the world tends to think that when we give our best, we better get a great return on investment. And Jesus just wants us to make the sacrifice. So I grew up with this character, this figure in my family's story. He's not a family member. We're not related to him. But he's a guy that grew up around my grandparents and was a good, close friend of our family. And as a little kid, I heard these stories about this guy. His name was Charlie Ruth. And so as a kid, Dad, every once in a while we'd be talking, and somebody who knew him would say, oh, you know Charlie Ruth? My dad would go, oh, do I know him? We grew up with him, and, and you know, he's been around. He, he lived with my grandparents for a while, and, and Charlie was an incredible guy. He was brilliant. He was, had an amazing intelligence. And Charlie Ruth's father had been an entrepreneur who had made a fortune. Also, highly intelligent, very creative, and he, he came up with an idea. I don't even know exactly what it was that he made. I failed to figure that out. But it had something to do with the building of the aqueduct that carried water down into the Los Angeles basin. If any of you have spent time in Southern California, you know that Los Angeles would have outgrown its water capacity a hundred years, more than a hundred years ago, except they built this aqueduct that carried huge pipeline that carries water down to LA. And Charlie Ruth's dad built something that had to do with that, and he made a fortune. He made a bunch of money. And then... The Great Depression hit. And he had made this money and he invested it, like some of us have done, some of you have done. He invested it in the stock market. And you remember that the beginning of the Great Depression was the Dust Bowl, but it was also the crash of the stock market. And Charlie Rue's dad lost everything. And somebody came to him and said, now, do you wish you could do that over again? Because they noticed that he was also incredibly, incredibly generous. And his dad had given lots of money, at least by that day's standards, to the church, to one of our colleges, to people who were in need. He gave money away like crazy recklessly, they thought. And so this person came to Charlie Ruth's dad and said, don't you wish you had to do it over again and maybe you wouldn't have given away so much money because you lost so much in the stock market crash. And Charlie Ruth's dad had this response, and it's one that has stayed with me. His response was this, if I had given away more money, I would have lost less. Isn't that great? 
The interesting thing was, after the depression ended, his dad made another fortune. He was just that kind of guy, and God blessed him. And Charlie Ruth was a brilliant guy. He ended up being, uh, becoming an engineer for Westinghouse Air Brakes, and he, ha- he held patents or things that he invented. And he came to visit us in Africa, and he's one of the strangest guys I ever met because he had two wristwatches, one on each wrist. And when I said to him, I said, hey, Uncle Charlie, is it because one of your watches quit working? He goes, no, this was years ago. He says, this one is, is Los Angeles time, and this one's Africa time. He was just brilliant that way. And we loved him. Charlie was so much fun to be around. But here's what I learned from Charlie Ruth was this, and he learned it from his dad. When you give to God, you give your best without expecting any return on investment. When you give to God, you give the best that you have to give him, even if you don't give it, get anything back, because if you give it to God, you've never wasted it. So here's the thing. Here's this woman who pours this stuff out and people go, what is she doing? And we're going to see in a moment that Judas has all kinds of problems with this. And she's giving her best to God. And I want to suggest to you that not one drop of that perfume was wasted. Not one. Because she gave her best. It was reckless. It was just like jumping off the bridge. Here you go, Jesus. Just like the guy in the picture there. So here we pick it up. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold. And the money given to the poor. Oh, come on. Some of us here would be right there with Judas. We'd go, go Judas. Correct her. What a waste. We could have done some great things. But here, catch this. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. I read this passage this week, and it spoke to my heart, because there are times when I just feel like, God, I've been so stupid, I let somebody take advantage of me. And then I go, Jesus, you were so stupid, you let somebody take advantage of you. You think Jesus didn't know? Jesus replied, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. He knows what's coming. It's coming this weekend. I mean, it's coming at Passover. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. That's his response to Judas. Some of us would be so pragmatic and practical that we'd go, oh, Judas was, what a great idea. We could have sold this. It's a, a year's wages. We could have financed a home for the poor. We could have done something for the orphans. We could have built a hospital in Africa. But instead, Jesus goes, just leave her alone, people. Not one drop of what she did from her heart as someone who is in love with Jesus, not one drop was wasted. She knows I have a moment right now. And he's right here and I have resources in my hand and I can just sacrifice my best. So let's talk. Remember that equation? Love equals sacrifice. One of the things I struggle with, and I think we struggle with, especially as Americans, is we tend to be people who want to play the role of Savior. We want to be the ones who come in, like uh, which cartoon character was it? Here I am to save the day. Mighty Dog, right? Mighty Mouse. I got that one mixed up. 
Underdog, wrong one. Mighty Mouse, thank you. We want to be Savior. But there is only one Savior. And that's Jesus Christ. Judas says, hey, we could have done some great charitable work with this stuff. And people would have gone, oh, well done. Let's, let's give them an honor or an award. And instead, here's Mary who just, in a moment of reckless love, just pours it all out. And here's the thing. Jesus does not want us, nor does he need us to be a savior. He's already taken care of that. But what he does want from us is he wants us to make sacrifices. Sometimes they seem meaningless. Sometimes the things that our heart, that move our heart to sacrifice for him seem like they make no sense. But I would suggest that when we make a sacrifice to the Lord, it is never wasted. Not one drop. Not one drop. And so in this thing, when we talk about love and sacrifice, it's not about us being able to move into a role where we get the praise as much as it's us moving into a role where we say, whatever resources we have, we will let them go so that our dependence is on Jesus Christ. So that our expression of love is authentic. So let's take this a step farther. Let's go back to this Kyle Eidelman who talks about this in his book. He says, the reason Jesus is so adamant about followers surrendering everything is because the reality is this. The one thing we are most reluctant to give up is the one thing that has the most potential to become a substitute for him. Now, some of you probably had the same response to that that I did. Ouch. You see, the one thing I hold on to the tightest is probably the thing I will be the quickest to worship as an idol instead of Christ himself. So if the thing you're holding on to is your investments and your bank balance and your retirement and all those things, I would just suggest to you, and I think Kyle would suggest to you, that that's really, really at risk of becoming your God. You know, it's interesting to me, we put on our money, we print in God we trust, which is one of the biggest lies we tell. (laughs) In God we trust, but I better make some money. And it's not just money. For some of us, the biggest temptation to idolatry is the people we have our closest relationships with. We worship our families, our marriages, For some of us, we worship our jobs. For some of us, we worship our comfort. Do not make me do something that will make me uncomfortable. Pastor, do not ask me to stand up and say something in church in front of everybody because what I really, really care about is being anonymous and comfortable and not distressed at all. I want to end with this. I think what Christ really wants is he wants people who follow him who are truly broken people. People who have experienced their sense of security fall apart. 
people who have seen the things around them that they've put faith in, that they've trusted in, fail them. And there's a difference between being broken people and being messed up people. There's a difference between being people who I have traveled enough in this world that I've experienced this kind of failure. I've experienced this kind of disappointment. I know what it is to trust something and have that thing just kind of fall apart. Jesus heals and he puts back together messed up people, but they remain broken people. So here's the thing. What we did today, this idea that the body of Christ is broken, you remember that it's also, it's not just an image for his physical body that would be pierced and crucified and would bleed, but that image of the body of Christ is the very same image that is used later in the New Testament to explain this is what the church looks like. This is what followers of Christ look like. They are the body of Christ. And that body is broken. Not because it's messed up, although it is messed up at times. I mean, we have to admit, churches do terrible things. We've made mistakes. We've, you know, we've watched resources just kind of funnel through our hands and wonder where they went. We don't want to remain messed up people, but boy, howdy, I hope we remain broken people. I hope we remain broken people so that we understand that there's nothing we can hold in our hands that can replace what Christ offers us. There's nothing I can put and clench my fist around that is worth more than having an open hand before Christ himself. And so we become people who would choose to say, I will ruin my best. (laughs) Whatever I have that is the best I have, whatever I've been good at, whatever I've accumulated, whatever resources have ended up under my control, I would actually ruin it. Because the best that Christ has is far better. I will take that nard, that perfume, whatever it is in my life, and I will run into the room and shatter it and just pour it out. And everybody else can go, you could have lived on that, you could have saved poor people, you could have done this, you could have done that, but I'm going to give it to Christ. Not because it makes sense, not because it's a wise investment, not because the rest of the world will go, oh, well done. But just because I love you, Jesus, and I love you more than this. Band, let's come up.